0: This morning we're hearing from Luke chapter 21 and verses 5 to 38. So if you could turn to that in your Bibles, I'm sure you'll find that helpful. Page numbers and some notes for what we're doing are on the back of the yellow sheet. Luke 21 verses 5 to 38. Imagine two religious groups. One has a large, plush, modern building 400 people attend each week. They look smart, and they are smart. And this group is respected in the community. It's asked to go into schools and and speak. Their leader is often invited to community events uh, to represent the church. The town's MP sometimes turns up at their meetings. That's one. Then the other meets in a rundown building. It's the only one they can get, because schools and the community centre won't rent to them, they're regarded as extremists. There's a handful of people meet, they don't look smart, and to be honest, they're not smart. You won't find influencers among them, and you won't find influencers having anything to do with them. Now, which of those two religious groups do you reckon is more likely to be right? And which of those would you be more likely to Want to be with. I think we tend to be far too impressed by numbers and success and image and respectability. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus has shown that his kingdom is different. In Luke, we've repeatedly found Jesus' kingdom is made up of the unrespectable and the downtrodden and the unimpressive and the outsiders. We've repeatedly found Jesus loving and welcoming those sorts of people. And we've found also Jesus clashing with the establishment, the impressive looking, the respected, the religion of his day. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks that from the end of chapter 19 through to the end of chapter 21 is Jesus clashing with the religion of the temple the impressive, respected religion of the day, which had sadly corrupted. But today we find that his disciples still don't get it. After all this time, and it's been a really repeated message, I hope you've been getting that, it's been quite repetitious as we've gone through Luke, same message, different variations. His disciples just still don't get it. Chapter 21, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. It's there in the middle of the section where Jesus has been clashing with the temple and they still think, this is wonderful, look at the building, look at the artwork. Sorry, no, not artwork, the Jews didn't have artwork. But anyway, unless you call the carvings and the ornateness and the richness of it artwork. They haven't got it yet that Jesus' kingdom worked quite differently. And I think we still tend to be a little like them. And so we need the teaching of Jesus in chapter 21 where he is correcting his disciples' misperception. Jesus here in verses 5 to 38 tells them the future. But it's not a bit of crystal ball gazing to satisfy our curiosity. He's telling them it to put right their wrong expectations. And so we must listen to it in that way. It's to put right our wrong expectations. So we're going to hear verses 5 to 38, Jesus teaching in four sections. I will have to admit, we're covering a lot here, but we're not going to cover everything. We can't, and I don't understand absolutely everything in this chapter. It is a difficult chapter. But, first of all, Jesus tells them this. He tells them about his unimpressive looking church. This is the first look into the future. And you look and see an unimpressive looking church. Verses 8 to 19. Now, the disciples have realised that Jesus is the Messiah, that's the promised king. So they know God's kingdom is about to be established on earth. And they're expecting great things. An impressive looking kingdom in a golden age of peace. That is clearly what the disciples thought would happen. An impressive looking kingdom in a golden age of peace. And they are right, Jesus is the Messiah. And they are right, his his kingdom will be established. And they are right to expect great things. But here Jesus shows them, the future is going to be very different from what you expect. It's not going to be an impressive-looking kingdom in a golden age of peace. It's going to be a persecuted people in an age of trouble. Let's see that by briefly going through verses 8 to 19, and this is where I'm really going to rush through the verses. First, we have a time of religious deceivers. Verse 8. Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. Jesus says, there are going to be people who claim that they are the Messiah, that they have the answers to the world's problems, or even that they actually speak for Jesus himself. But they are not speaking the truth. Jesus says... Expect a future with a lot of religious confusion. Now we know, don't we, that there are all sorts of churches. And just because they say church doesn't mean that they speak the truth and speak for Jesus. People look at that and say, well, how can we believe any church or anyone who claims to speak for him? Jesus said, actually, that's what you're to expect. It's going to be an age of religious confusion. It's also going to be a time of trouble. This is verses 9, 10 and 11. In verse 9 and 10, we have wars and revolutions described. In verse 11, we have natural disasters. Have a look at verse 11. You've got natural disasters, great earthquakes, you've got famines famines and pestilences. That's interesting. What would we call a pestilence? We call it a pandemic or a virus. And Jesus says, They shouldn't surprise you. Expect them. Do notice verse 9. Jesus doesn't say, they are signs he's about to return. People have often thought that. Well, look at all troubles. Jesus must be just about to return. He doesn't say that. He says they will be characteristics of the age. Not a sign he's about to return. Time of religious confusion, time of trouble, and time of persecution. This is verses 12 to 19. A time of persecution. Jesus hasn't come to establish a kingdom where his people are the ones with power and influence. He's come to establish a kingdom where his people are persecuted by the ones with power and influence. Verse 12 But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. His people will be persecuted by the ones with power and influence, far from having the power and influence. And he hasn't come to bring a golden age of peace and harmony between everyone where everyone will love you and respect you if you're a Christian. His people may even have their own families turn against them. Verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends. And then Jesus doesn't say, but don't worry, they won't succeed. He says, actually, some of you, they'll manage to kill. Verse 16, the last few words, and they will put some of you to death. Well, we've whizzed through quite a few verses there, but to get a flavour of the whole, Jesus says he's not come to bring an impressive-looking kingdom in a golden age of peace. He's come to bring an unimpressive-looking church in an age of religious confusion, trouble and persecution. But in all of it, if you look closely, you will find that Jesus is working out his plan. So the troubles give his people opportunity to commend Jesus to the world. Have a look at verse 13. This, all this persecution, will result in your being witnesses to them. You're going to be witnesses for me you're going to commend me to the world. Because faith despite troubles, not backing down from following Jesus despite pressure, maybe even from your family, confidence in God when life looks chaotic, they commend Jesus far more than any amount of church activity when everything's going easy. And Jesus says, I'll be with you in these troubles. Verse 15, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Remember verse 16, he still says they'll kill you, possibly. He's not saying I'll supply all you need to get you out of the trouble. He's saying I'll supply all you need to honour me in the trouble. And then he says a very strange thing. He's still in control, so much that he can say, verse 18, isn't verse 18 so strange? But not a hair of your head will perish. What on earth does he mean? He's just said in verse 16, some of you will die. Does he mean they'll die, but the hair will survive? Have you heard of Polycarp? Polycarp, what a funny name. I suppose it wasn't a funny name back then, because he was from he lived from AD 65 to 155. And he was one of the first Christian bishops. And he refused to turn from Christ, even though they said they would kill him. And they burnt him at the stake. They tied him to a stake and they burnt him. Did his hair survive the flames? Is that what Jesus is saying? but don't worry, your hair will survive the flames. Well, of course, that's not what Jesus means. But he's showing whatever people do to you, God cares for the tiniest detail of your life. Tiny thing, isn't it? Oh, I tried to grab my hair and I couldn't. It's a pretty tiny thing, your hair. And God cares for even the tiniest detail of your life. And this, this care isn't just a nice saying to make you feel warm. Have a look at the words. All the words are so carefully chosen in the Bible. Look at the words in verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. Does the word perish ring a bell? Can you think of a verse in the Bible, another verse with the word perish? John chapter 3 verse 16. But God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Perish, but have everlasting life. By the way, it's not just a mistake of the translation. It is actually the same word originally. The exact same word. Perish. And so Polycarp, when he was taken to the stake to be burnt, he said to his persecutors, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Jesus is saying here, whatever people do to you, if you stand firm in your trust in him, he will raise you, actual physical you. He cares for every atom of you and he will raise actual physical you to eternal life. Now, remember who Jesus was saying this to and why. He was saying it to his disciples who were impressed by the temple and he was saying it to shape their expectations and it should shape our expectations also. On the 2nd of June, 1953, do you know what happened? Queen Elizabeth II was crowned and her coronation was full of symbolism taken from the Bible and hymns, and prayers, and Bible readings, and a representative of churches in the UK presented her with the Bible and said, this is the most precious thing the earth affords. Now, all of that event represented a country where Christianity was establishment, and respected, and part of public life. And boy, has that changed an awful lot. It's no longer the case. I wonder what the coronation of Charles will be like. I suspect very different. Christianity is no longer establishment and respect it. And Christians can act like something's gone wrong. We must cling on to our establishment status. We must cling on to our respected status. We must have prayers in local council meetings and all that sort of thing. No, Jesus says... Expect to be a, respect, a disrespected outsider. Expect to be badly treated. Expect to be misunderstood and misrepresented. Young people here, you are growing up in a society increasingly turning against Christianity. Now that doesn't mean have a victim mentality. It means don't expect a comfortable life with everyone admiring you. Trust Jesus and have some backbone. Jesus is telling his disciples the future and there he set the general expectation but it's not just one continuous uninterrupted line. He set the general what's going to happen but there is going to be a big blip in this line and that is in verses 20 to 24. Let's move on verses 20 to 24, we have the end of the old religion. The end of the old religion. This church of Jesus doesn't look impressive. The temple did. There are the disciples and they're admiring its architecture. But that temple stood for a religion that was corrupt. It wasn't originally started by God, but it had corrupted. And it's, and the temple and its corrupt religion were going to come crashing down. And that's what Jesus is saying in verses 20 to 24. Now, imagine an ancient walled city, and armies are approaching it. What do the people in the villages and farms outside the city do? Well, they stream into the city for safety. Picture the peasants, can you, with their possessions bundled on their backs. And they're streaming in through the city gates for refuge. And here Jesus says, don't. Now, don't do that. Worst thing to do. Instead, he says, get into the mountains. Do you remember the Yazidis and others in Iraq when ISIS came? What did they do? They got into the mountains for safety. And that's what Jesus says to do here. Because Jerusalem will become the worst place to be. It will fall to its enemies And its people will be put to the sword. And this all happened in 70 AD, when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and killed a vast proportion of its people. 40 years after Jesus, it all happened just as he'd said. And notice what Jesus calls this in verse 22. Have a look at verse 22. For this is the time of punishment, in fulfilment of all that has been written. In what looked like out of control chaos and disaster, Jesus says, no, it's God fulfilling his plan. That temple was supposed to point forward to the Son of God because he is God with us, our temple. Those sacrifices were supposed to point forward to the Savior because He sacrificed Himself for us. Those priests were supposed to point forward to the Son of God because He represents us to God. But when He came, they wouldn't have Him. And they said, we have no King but Caesar, away with this man. And they strung Him up on the cross to die. And so here we find God using that same Caesar to tear down that temple and to stop those sacrifices. And by the way, they've never been restarted. And to kill the priests, and by the way, Judaism today still has no priests, God was tearing down the signpost because the reality it pointed to had come and we need to have our eyes on him. And he was punishing the people Because the king had come and they'd said, away with him, we won't have him. Now, here we are today, 2020, and the church is unimpressive and the world is very troubled and it can shake our faith and give us doubts. And one of the reasons is because we fail to recognise how God works. We are being told here, he works through troubles. Imagine you were a Christian back then, AD 70, and you were camping up in the mountains for safety, hiding from the Romans, and you know what's happening in Jerusalem. And you think, look at those vicious soldiers. Look at the Romans killing our people. Where is God? And then maybe you get out your scroll of Luke, and you read, actually, God is here, working through all this, just as Jesus said. He works through troubles. We tend to think, oh look, I've seen God working because he's answered my prayer and removed this trouble or that trouble. That's when we see him working, when he removes the trouble. No, the Bible says, yes, that, that may be God working. But the Bible consistently tells us God works through the troubles and through judgment and through judgment. In the late 19th century and the early 20th century, churches were teaching that humans are fundamentally good and that God is love in this sentimental way that means he'd never judge anyone. That was late 19th century, early 20th century. And do you know which country it was mainly being taught in? Germany. And what then happened? World War I, rise of Nazism, World War II... And people left the faith because that sentimental idea of God couldn't stand up to what they had experienced. But this is no sentimental God we find in verse 20 to 24. He brings judgment on Jerusalem and he did in reality and it was ferocious. If you don't believe in a God of terrifying judgment, you don't believe in the God that Jesus knew and taught about. And then thirdly, Jesus says, all this is a demonstration of the bigger plan. We move now into verse 25 to 33. Verse 25 to 33. Suddenly, without warning, we jump to a different subject in verse 25 but that's because it isn't actually all that different. All we've heard so far has been like a little model. Now, think of that, a little model. That tells you what's coming is going to be really big. A little model to demonstrate the even bigger picture. Jesus is saying, now, what's happened there up to 70 AD is what we are to expect An unimpressive looking church in troubled times with the enemies of God seeming totally dominant brought suddenly to an end but this time by Jesus returning. So it's Jesus returning that is now being described in verses 25 to 28. And verse 25 uses the language of natural disasters. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. That word perplexity is interesting. It's from the word for a feeling of helplessness in the face of natural disaster. Think of that. A feeling of helplessness in the face of natural disaster. That's very suitable. Think of people on the coast of Sri Lanka on the 26th of December 2004 and they see a strange thing. They see the sea pulling back from the shore and they're confused by what is happening. And then comes the, the word here, perplexity, because then in rushes the tsunami. Can they swim against it? Can they hold on to that object next to them and just cling on long enough until it's passed? And Jesus uses this language of his coming because it will throw people into confusion. Because he will come with such power. Because he will be so inescapable. Because he will similarly overwhelm those who resist him. And yet to those who trust him, he says, verse 28, it's not all bad news, it's also very good news. Verse 28 when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. To those who trust Jesus, well, they'll be able to stand with their heads held high when the tsunami hits. They're looking forward to seeing him because the one coming is the one who loves them so much he died for them. And he's coming for their redemption. What's redemption? Well, it means freeing something. He's coming to free them from the oppression and the injustice and the suffering and the persecution and the weakness and even all of their sin. So the obvious question is, are you trusting him, safely sheltering in him, ready for that day? There's no other shelter that can shelter you for that day. Are you safely sheltering in him? You need to be, because it's certain. And that's the meaning of verses 29 to 33. In verses 29 to 33, Jesus is telling us, this is certain. Now, I must comment on the really difficult verse, verse 32. Well, actually, I'm not going to go through it. But I will just say this. The word generations back then could have more of a range of meanings than we have for it. It can mean the human race. It could mean the race of the Jews. It's a broader word than the way we use generation to just mean the next 40 years or so. But I'm not going to go through that verse because it is admittedly difficult and I'm trying to get through the whole chapter. The point is this. Verses 29 to 33, their point is not to give us a timetable of when all this will happen so we can make nice predictions. Their point is to tell us it is certain. Jesus who rose from the dead. Jesus whose words earlier in the chapter have been proven by history. He tells us it is certain. He is coming back like that. So be ready. This is the last section. Verse 34 to 36. So be ready. Now, as we've gone through Luke's Gospel over the many weeks, we have seen again and again Jesus came for people whose lives were in a mess. Jesus came for people who'd sinned so terribly against God and he welcomed them and he brought them safely into God's family and they loved them and brought them under God's fatherly care as they simply and humbly trusted him. That's all it was. They simply and humbly trusted him. But the Bible never encourages or allows an attitude of, "I'm safely in God's family and forgiven, so now I can do as I like and everything will be okay." It never allows that. It never allows us to turn Jesus' welcome into, "Well, oh, now I just go and do as I please and everything will be sure to be fine. Once saved, always saved. I'm okay." The Bible knows it is easy to con yourself and to take false hope from a dead faith that says, Oh, yeah, I believe the Bible, while carrying on as if the Bible's not true. Easy to do that. Oh, yes, I believe the Bible, but your life says, No, you don't really, because you're carrying on as if it's not true. And so Jesus warns be ready, verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Jesus is saying, if you tick off, I believe in Jesus, and you turn up to church, but you're carrying on life as if he'll never come back. Your life is given to chasing what unbelievers chase. That might be indulging in sin, or he says it might just be living for status and comfort and all those other things that quite innocently people chase after. You've ticked off I believe in Jesus, you turn up to church, but really your life, your heart is set on what the world chases. What does Jesus say his return will be like for you? It's there in verse 34. What will his return be like for you? A squirrel has found a trail of nuts. And they lead to a nice pile of nuts. And the squirrel follows that trail to the pile. Oh, that looks very nice. And he puts his paw forward and... The trap has closed on him. And there's no escape. And that isn't me just making up an alarmist illustration. It's the words of Jesus in verse 34. So positively, here's what to do about it. Verse 36. Be always on the watch. Be always on the watch. In other words, Jesus is saying, look forward to him coming. Are you looking forward to it? If you, if you know him now, then surely you will be. That's the key to it, knowing him now. Then you'll be looking forward. Live ready for him returning. He isn't saying, make silly speculations like, oh, coronavirus must mean the end of the world's about to happen. He's not saying that. Now, have a look at what's happening in the world and and work out. How long is it till Jesus returns? That's not what he's doing. When I was a teenager, I remember an elderly man describing a news item he'd just seen. Someone had answered their door and been shot when they answered it by someone who, in a random killing, he said, such terrible things happening in the world. Jesus must be about to return. Well, we might laugh, that's a bit naive. That's a bit silly. That's not what Jesus is meaning. But I tell you what, at least he was looking forward to Jesus returning and thinking about it. Far rather have him it's pretty naive and simplistic, but he's looking forward to it, than someone who's sophisticated and better thought out, but they don't care when Jesus returns. In fact, it'd be quite an inconvenience if he did this week. Live looking forward to his return. Live ready for his return. And pray. Do you see that in verse 36? And pray. Pray. Jesus, keep hold of me. Keep me trusting you. I know my weakness. Keep me trusting you. Father in heaven, keep me living ready for when Jesus returns. So when he does, I've got in my life the evidence that I'm really in him. The evidence to reassure me. And then I can, verse 36, stand before the Son of Man. Imagine that. The greatest man ever, who is God and man. And you can stand before him, bold and unashamed, standing before the judge, because you're safe in him. More than bold and unashamed, loving and delighting and worshipping, because he's your saviour. And he loves you and he's coming to take you to be with him.